Our text this morning is Malachi, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 3, and I invite you to turn there and follow as I read. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day comes burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from a stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Sometimes you have to step back in order to see the obvious. It's true with some remarkable things about Christmas. And we miss them, just totally miss them. The way we miss the sky and the ground under our feet and the air we breathe. Indisputable, global significances of the birth of Jesus and we hardly ever think about them. I want to mention three. Number one, one third of the five billion people in this world call themselves Christians. That's 1.6 billion people have so come under the sway of the man Jesus Christ that they declare Christianity to be their religion. Not only that, This religion called Christianity is the most universal and widespread of all faiths. It is found in every single political country on the face of the globe. And in two-thirds of those 223 countries, more than 50% of the people align themselves with the Christian movement. Why? Because Jesus Christ was born. An undisputable historical religious fact. There is no religious leader, Buddha, Confucius, Moses, Muhammad, who can come close to the historical impact and the extent of the influence of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of Christmas, number one, that nobody can deny. Number two. Throughout the whole Western world, and in most of the non-Western world, doctors, dentists, and butchers, and bakers, and computer programmers, and presidents date their checks, 1987, because Jesus Christ was born. No other person in the history of mankind has been afforded the honor of splitting the history of this world in half. So that people, whether they believe in Jesus or not, are compelled day in and day out by the way they date their checks to bear witness to the incomparable influence of this obscure man, Jesus Christ The world must reckon with Jesus, whether they want to or not. Number three, all over the Western world and in much of the non-Western world, Sunday 
is a holiday. It's even different from Saturday. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. In other words, there are religious and historical and cultural effects of the birth of Jesus Christ that are absolutely indisputable and of such magnificent proportions that no one comes close to being an analogy in the history of the world. And the question that poses for us this morning is, why? What explanation will we give to the power of this man that has no peer in all of world history? I want to suggest three explanations for why Jesus is changing the world to such an incomparable extent. And they come from the Bible. I want to take three New Testament witnesses, Luke, Matthew, and John. Men who either knew Jesus personally or knew those who knew him very well. And read to you from their testimony, their answer to the question why Jesus is having the effect he's having. The first witness is Luke. And if you want to look at these, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 30 to 35. Luke chapter 1. Now Luke, as many of you know, wrote a two-volume work about early Christianity, the life of Jesus in his gospel, and the life of the early church in the Acts of the Apostles. He didn't know Jesus personally before he died and rose again, but he knew Paul well. And when Paul was in Caesarea in jail for two years, it says in the book of Acts, or it implies very clearly in the book of Acts, that Luke was with him or in the vicinity, waiting so that he could travel with him again. What do you suppose Luke was doing in Palestine, in Judea, for two years? It's almost certain, by common sense and by clues in his gospel, he was talking with people who knew Jesus, Mary in particular. Have you ever asked why, in Luke's gospel, three times, I believe, it says something to the effect, and Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart? The reason, I believe, is because he talked to her. She was the source of his first two chapters. She had kept them pure, clear. Now a gospel writer had them. And the explanation of her own experience is given in these verses 30 to 35. And Luke writes that the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, what is Luke's answer to the question why Jesus Christ is having such world-changing effect? His answer is, 
His birth was a miracle. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. He was the very Son of God. He is a king whose kingdom will never end. That's why Jesus is changing the world. Witness number two, Matthew chapter one, verses 20 to 24. Now, Matthew was a disciple who knew Jesus all three years long. And when he undertook to write about the birth of Jesus, he recorded for us the wrestling that went on in Joseph's mind. How can I marry a pregnant woman? That struggle in Joseph's heart was resolved again through a testimony of an angel. And Matthew records it like this. Verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, what was Matthew's answer to the question why Jesus is turning the world on its head and having more impact upon this uh, world than any other human being has ever lived or ever will live? His answer was... The birth of this man was a supernatural conception from the Holy Ghost. This man was a savior of his people through his life and death and resurrection. This man is none other than Emmanuel, God, with us. That's his answer. What is John's answer? Now, John, in his gospel, chapter 1, John was not only one of the twelve who went about with Jesus during his life and knew him personally, but John was one of the three, Peter, James, and John. And not only was he one of the three, he was the one, the beloved disciple who laid his head on Jesus' breast that last night as they ate together, and the one to whom Jesus from the cross committed his mother. Behold thy mother, behold thy son. This man knew Jesus more deeply than anybody else, and his testimony to Jesus is deeper than anybody else. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then drop down with me to verse 14 if you're following. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, what was John's answer to why Jesus is turning the world on its head, why nobody compares to Jesus Christ in the history of this world? His answer, he never had a beginning. He is God. He was enfleshed as man, a God-man. He reveals the glory of God. In him is truth, life, light. How can he not turn the world on its head? How can he not lead the greatest movement that the human story has ever known? There you have it. Three biblical witnesses giving their explanation of why the indisputable historical facts are the way they are today. Now, 
That confronts us with a very big choice. Are we going to let the biblical witnesses who knew him best shape our understanding and our heart for why Jesus is the way he is today? Or are we going to let a man-centered, Secular, godless culture give us our explanation for why the world is the way it is. That's the question. Now, let me pose it to you this way. Are you going to wholeheartedly this morning agree with the biblical explanation of the impact of Jesus Christ? Let me sum it up for you. In six or seven phrases. Are you going to agree this morning that there is a God who created us, sustains the world and the universe, and guides the world to an appointed goal? Are you going to agree? Will you agree this morning that this God is three in one? It's a mystery. We can have some insight, but we won't exhaust it, which is what you would expect of an infinite creator. Three in one, Father, Son, Divine, Holy Spirit, God. Will you agree that this Father God creator sent this divine Son into the world, conceived in a virgin of this Holy Spirit, so that a God-man lived a perfect life died and rose again. Will you agree that this God-man is a king whose kingdom will never end? Will you agree that this God-man is a savior of his people? Will you agree that this God-man reveals the glory of God and speaks only the truth? Will you agree that this God-man is the Messiah, the fulfiller of all God's promises? And will you agree, therefore, that he is the key that unlocks all of history And all of your life. That's the question you're put before this morning as you ponder the meaning of Christmas. The biblical testimony to why the world is the way it is and why Christ has more influence, more power, more effect in this world than any man that has ever lived. And why he is bringing his purposes to a grand conclusion at the last day. The biblical explanation confronts you with, will you agree with all your heart? That this fundamental, basic, biblical truth. Now, standing in the way of that agreement are many things that people see. You could talk about logical or historical problems. I don't really think that there are any insuperable ones. And I don't think that's what keeps most people back from agreeing with that grand doctrine that I just described. That truth that the Bible says is the truth. You know what I think keeps, I don't know whether to say most or just millions, back, is this. It just doesn't look relevant. It doesn't connect. I mean, I get up in the morning. I eat breakfast. I go to work. I earn my money, I get my paycheck, I buy what I need, I watch a little TV at night, 
I play with my kids. I just uh, go on vacation every now and then. I sleep at night. And my life is all right. I'm making it. That kind of mythological religious talk is irrelevant. It doesn't connect. It doesn't make any sense in the 20th century. It's like you read in one of the back sections of the newspaper, one of those little articles that pop up every now and then about a scientific discovery inside the molecule or the atom or some galaxy out there, and you read it and it's interesting, and you go to work and somebody says, did you see that article? Do you agree with that? You say, I don't know. I mean, maybe. Sure, why not? I mean, it doesn't make any difference, right? I mean, you leave scientists, science to, to the scientists, right? And religion to weirdos like Piper and other people that go to church every Sunday. Even at night. Some go at night. I think that's the obstacle. It's, it doesn't connect. Life just goes on in this secular country and in other countries around the world with no reference, they think, to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want that to be true for you this morning. I don't want you to walk out of here this morning feeling that way if you walked in feeling that way. I'd like to get over that obstacle, whatever other obstacles may be holding you back. I don't want that one to be the one this morning. So what I'd like to do in the minutes we have left is this. I want to take you to one verse of Scripture. Malachi, the last prophet who prophesied in the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verse 2. And I want to unfold for you from this verse five little pictures, or big pictures if we had time. Five pictures of the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to unfold them in such a way that if possible, by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, you would feel that they connect with where you are this morning. Let me read the verse for you and then tell you the five pictures and then we'll look at them. The verse is chapter 4, verse 2, and we're taking it out of the context here where the context is describing the contrast between what the day of the Lord will mean for the arrogant in verse 1 and what the day of the Lord will mean for the fearers of God in verse 2. That's the one I want to focus on. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. Now, what's he talking about? Well, I'm going to take my clue. I could argue in much detail from chapter 3 about the messenger of the covenant, but I just want to settle the issue, if you believe in the New Testament at all, by going over to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Because when Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, prophesied about the coming of Jesus, he alluded to this verse, that the day was dawning when Jesus Christ came into the world. He uses one of the verbs that this verse uses. And, and by that verb, he was testifying that the rising of Jesus Christ in the world is the rising of this Son of Righteousness. And the last verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing is absolutely right in its theology. We're going to sing it at the end of this service. There are five magnificent pictures in this verse. Pictures somehow waken us perhaps better than other things might. Here they are. A rising sun. Beams of righteousness, wings of healing, breaking out of a stall 
and leaping like calves. Let's look at them. Number one, the rising of the sun. This is a good morning to preach on this. I don't know if you were up by 8 o'clock, but I stood at Elsie's window at 7.55 this morning and watched the last 10 seconds before the sun appeared over the rim on I-94 out there, and it was magnificent. And the Lord had taken his brush and kind of gone like that for about 10 miles, 10 miles stroke like that, I figure. It was just a magnificent sunrise. Now, what does a sunrise mean? What happens when the sun rises? Two things. Number one, light where there was darkness. Light. Now, that means that Jesus, when he comes into your life and into this world, brings light. And what light means is truth. Light on your path, truth in the world, and we are so desperately in need of truth in our day. Jesus said to Pilate, let's go to the other end of his life for a moment and listen to what he said. He said, for this cause I was born and came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate, speaking for the 20th century, said, what is truth? What is truth? The heart cry agony of our day is, whose truth? Your truth? My truth? Black truth? White truth? Chinese truth? Russian truth? What truth are you talking about? There is no truth. The truth. And the result in our culture is the bankruptcy of morals, the intellect, the soul, and the family. Have you ever asked why? There might be a connection between relativism and skepticism on the one hand and the absolute decay of relationships, especially the family. Could it be that one of the reasons is that fathers who ought to have a moral vision for why the family exists don't even know why they exist. They don't know why their children have come into being. They can't answer any of the real questions that children have. All they're shut up to do is help a kid know how to earn a little more money or not get sick so often. And the vacuum, the starvation of the souls of our generations is getting deeper and deeper with every unbelieving generation. What we need is light. We need a beam, a big, strong ray that just shines right out of heaven into which we can walk on a stage of life and stay right there so that we can see. We need an anchor of truth in this ocean of uncertainty around us and relativism. I mean, if that doesn't connect for you, what connects? How in the world do you lead your life with meaning without an anchor in eternity that gives significance to what you do, that it's outside the little three score and ten when you're just going poof and you're gone. Jesus is light in a world of darkness. Now here's the second thing that it means when the sun comes up. It means safety is replacing uh, danger. You see, in the dark, you walk along and you might trip over something, or bang your head on a branch, or fall off the edge of the podium, or a cliff, or somebody might jump out from behind somewhere and steal from you. But when the light comes on, you duck, you step over it, 
You don't go off the end of the cliff. And you avoid places where people may be hiding. Now, Jesus is like that. Jesus rises like a sun not only to give you truth and guidance. He rises to give you safety. To keep you back from perilous decisions that are going to kill you. He gives you a pathway that will bring you to glory and not to destruction with light on it all the way. So those are two out of the four things I thought of. Let's go to the second image. First image was a rising sun. The second image is the beams of righteousness that go out from that sun. He is a son of righteousness. I take that to mean that as the sun rises, right holds sway. Things are made right. And as the sun reaches the apogee of its noonday splendor, 20, 30, 40, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, oh, no. 20 after 12. 20 minutes ago. When it reaches there and Jesus comes back, all wrongs will be made right. Man is made right with God through reconciliation. Man is made right with man. Through love and forgiveness and humility and patience. And in the end, for those who trust, all will be made right with God and man. And for those who don't, God is going to have the last word in judgment. And the cause of truth and right will be vindicated. Now that makes a difference. You don't have to carry the load of vengeance and indignation in your heart for wrongs that have been done to you or wrongs that are done in this world. I mean, I don't know what people do as they look out upon the world and see the massive injustices that they are, where people who are seemingly innocent are treated miserably and people who are seemingly righteous, I mean, seemingly wrong and and evil, prosper. What would you do if there were no God coming into the world intending to make things right, to vindicate the innocent, to vindicate the righteous, I guess you would just have to say it is absurd, this world in which we live. Let us eat, drink, and be merry and get as much for ourselves as we can. We're all going to poof and go out of existence anyway, and there's no rhyme or reason about the injustices in the world. Well, Jesus came into the world with beams of righteousness streaming from him to declare things will be made right. Picture number three is the healing in his wings. I remember a sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean 19 years ago this week on my honeymoon. I don't know if I'd ever seen a sunrise over an ocean. We were in a holiday inn for three days, and there's one of those angled balconies right on the ocean. And I got up early. And uh, here's the way it happens. There is at first a, a line of uh, yellow and gold over the curb. The ocean is slightly curved if you're up high enough. And as the sun comes closer and closer to the horizon, the light concentrates itself in the middle very strongly until 
like it happened over the freeway today, the sun surges up out of the ocean. And then because you've got a sharp line, you can actually watch the sun move up out of the water. And what happens when it breaks out of the water totally is that it gathers this line, as it were, up with it into the air. And I'm almost sure that's what Malachi means when he talks about the wings of the sun. The sun will rise with healing in its Wings, And I think when he saw that, God said to him, Malachi, what I mean by that beauty embracing this globe is healing. The meaning of the coming of Jesus is healing. Now, we don't have time to go into a full doctrine of healing this morning, but let me make three statements. Number one, Jesus Christ heals sick people in this age when they ask him. And we stand ready as a staff to come and pray for you and with you and anoint you with oil if you would like us in dire straits to pray with you. Number two, Jesus doesn't heal everybody in this age, even when they have faith, because he is the sovereign governor of the universe and we don't shape the world according to our designs. And number three, everybody who is Christ's will be healed at the resurrection. We will be raised from the dead, be given new bodies. All diseases and crying and pain and grief and sorrow will be done away with. And if that doesn't connect with you today, it will someday. It will someday. The fourth image is breaking out of a stall. I take this to mean Jesus brings freedom where there was bondage. We're all in a stall, locked in. Most stalls are small for calves. They can't even turn around sometimes. And we need the door opened so that we can get out. And as long as we're in there, we might party in the stall all night long. But we'll never know the freedom that Jesus gives, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, Freedom from bad habits that wreck our lives. We'll never know that freedom until the stall is opened by Jesus Christ. When Jesus rises like a sun, it means freedom where there was bondage. I remember a few years ago, it was four years ago, in fact, a young thoughtful woman came into my study and she said, did you really mean in that Christian hedonism series that you gave, this is 1983, that you think everybody is driven by joy, that everybody's after joy. I said, yes, what would you suggest? And she said, well, for me, freedom is more basic. So everybody wants freedom. And I want to own up to the powerful importance of freedom in our lives. We do want freedom, but let me move to image five to show you why I still am a thoroughgoing 1983 Christian hedonist. Namely, it says in the text that when the stall is opened and we are granted our freedom, we don't crawl out. We don't just walk out. We don't wander about. We leap like calves from the stall. And I asked my boys at the breakfast this morning, what does that mean? What does leaping mean? And they said, happy. It means they're happy. And I said, that's exactly what it means. And there's no doubt about it. 
In other words, freedom is the necessary precondition to joy. God's goal, God's ultimate goal for you this morning, and this is why Jesus came into the world, is for you to be happy in him. If you know the doctrine, it goes like this. The ultimate goal of God in all of history is that his name would be glorified in my being satisfied in him. You don't have to go anywhere but to look to and listen to the angels to hear that, do you? What was the first thing the angels said? Behold, I bring you good news of what? Say it. Great joy. And then when they sang, what did they sing? Glory to whom? God in the highest. That's it. Joy to man. Glory to God. That is the meaning of the universe. And the meaning of Christmas. Let me sum it up for you as we close. Jesus Christ came into the world to be light where there's darkness, to be righteousness where there is wrong, to be healing where there's sickness and brokenness, freedom where there is bondage, and joy where there's dreariness and sadness and discouragement. And my plea to you this morning is don't let the grace of God in this message Reach you in vain. Don't stand outside anymore like a spectator looking upon the drama of redemption saying it doesn't connect, it doesn't relate, it has nothing to do with my life. Come on in. Let the families be joined in the faith this season. All the families at Bethlehem, let them be joined in the faith of Jesus Christ. Let the sun of righteousness dawn in your own soul. This year. And let's declare our allegiance to the Son of Righteousness together by singing that last verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Hail the Son of Righteousness. It's number 184, verse number 3. Let's stand as we sing.